to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding And now will you uh, turn with me if you have the Pew Bible in front of you, you can turn to page 942. And you'll find our passage from Romans chapter 5. If you're with us uh, new today, we've actually been studying Romans for several months and have now come to this point. And just at the outset, uh, there may be some question as to what does this have to do with the resurrection. Uh, want to point out as he talks about in verse 10 that we will be saved by his life. This is a, in this passage, Paul is showing because of the greatness of what God has done for us in his death and because of the greatness of Christ's continued resurrection life, uh, we have assurance that we will, can face judgment with no fear whatsoever. Having shown his love in us to us in Christ, we can be sure that his love will protect us in that final day when wrath comes upon this world. Now, you, at the outset, you have to realize that this is written in the context that wrath is coming upon this world. That is a certainty. That is a, something I can say to every one of you. We all will face the judgment of God. We all will come to that day. And I don't know when, I don't know how, I can't tell you what your life's going to be like, but I can tell you that you will stand before God. And I can tell every one of you, just like I say to myself, we must have the protection of Christ in that day. And Paul is assuring us in this passage, he's assuring us that we have a glorious, absolute certain hope of safety in that day through the Lord Jesus I will begin with verse 1, actually, and we're going to talk about verses 6 through 11. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, brought into a right relationship with God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Four, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Lord, bless to us this Word. May it grip our hearts. May it build our faith in Christ. O Lord, draw us to Yourself through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in His name that we come to You. Amen. I uh, attended Gadsden High School, Gadsden, Alabama, from 1966 to 1969. And I'm sure you people born in the 70s and 80s are saying, dude, you're old. Uh, Yeah, okay, so. But uh, (laughs) while I was there, I was a part of the Velvetones, which was the school choir. In fact, the two guys in my rock group, lead guitarist, lead singer, we were all three in, that, uh, in the Velvetones. So we wore one hat during the day and another at night. Uh, <laughs> but as a part of the Velvetones, our director was, was Gene Barnes. He was an excellent director, and like any director, he is seeking ways to motivate his students, to keep us focused, to keep us concentrated, always working to become a good choir. And we were really an excellent high school choir, won awards every year and the like. But in my two years uh, as a part of the Velvetones, I heard one phrase from Mr. Barnes. It uh, must have been every single week. Because when I think of Velvetones and I think of Mr. Barnes, that's all I think about is that phrase. He just drilled it into us. And it was this phrase. As he would tell us that we've got to keep at it, we've got to work, he would say, Remember, God helps those that help themselves. Now, I don't know if he thought it was a part of the Bible. I kind of think he did. Uh, Actually, it's a part of uh, Poor Richard's Almanac, written in 1732 by Benjamin Franklin, who's quoting there a guy named Algernon uh, Sidney from the 1600s. And actually, the original quote is, God helps those that helps themselves. Kind of like that better. Not that I like it at all, but kind of like the... uh, bad plural there. God helps those that helps themselves, okay? Um, but we really would have to say, Mr. Sidney, you got that all wrong. You, there isn't a God. In fact, we'd have to say, there isn't even a God like that. There isn't even a God like that that helps those that help themselves, As uh, C.E.B. Cranfield, writing on this passage, says, He did not wait for us to start helping ourselves, but he died for us when we were altogether helpless. That's what he did. God helps the helpless, period. That's who he helps, is the helpless. That's what this passage begins, uh, how this passage begins in verse 6. So what he shows, he wants to measure for us the greatness of God's love. Now, he measures it by the fact that God gave his own son, and he mentions that, that this is the death of his son. And when he talks about God's love, he doesn't just say, see, Christ loved us. He said, God loved us by giving us his son. So it's viewed as if, if Christ suffers, God has suffered in Christ. If Christ has given himself away, God views this as God having given himself away. It is God's love that is shown. It is God's love that is behind this. And it's shown not just that it's God giving his son, but giving his son for death. A horrible death of the cross. To be under judgment and not for good people. 
But for those he calls weak, sinners, ungodly, enemies. Now, the flow of argument is this. If God has so loved us in that cataclysmic way, that amazing, unthinkable way, unique only to God, can't, and, and he did that while we were enemies, now having made us his friends in Christ, do you think he's going to abandon you in judgment day? No. That's the argument of Paul here. To give us the assurance that as we look to that final day, we can know that we're safe. And some of us may say, well, I I got that down. I've got salvation down. But most of us, many of us, are on a kind of performance basis, I fear, with God. That we'll say, yes, He's forgiven me of my sins, but so quickly do we feel like God has turned against us. So quickly do we wonder how He feels about me. And we're unsure of His love. We're unsure of His commitment. And, and things can happen in our lives that destroys our assurance. We, if, if they're tragic things or bad things, we think, what have I done? What have I done? Am I under God's judgment? What's He going to do to me? Really, all of that is kind of a fear of God's wrath. It's really a fear of, that maybe judgment finally is going to fall on me. Maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe I don't have the right kind of faith. Maybe I don't have it all together and even though I've been in the church and I think I trust in Christ, maybe in the end, judgment's going to follow me. The the test of our assurance is to think about that day of judgment and to have absolute hope when you think of judgment day. Now, that's a comfortable life. That's a comfortable life. Because as the writer of Hebrews says, he came to set us free from the fear of death. Think of that. As, as a summary of his salvation, he came to set us free from the fear of death which had us as slaves our whole lives. Hebrews 2. And so, I hope that we will be encouraged as we look to that final day of his love. And so, just quickly, we'll look at the certain love of God. Then we'll look at the certain hope of God. And and they're connected. The certain love of God creates a certain hope in God. And I dare say for us, it's because we are not sure about that love that we're not sure about that hope. We define love in a different way and it doesn't translate into, wait, if love is so drastic and wonderful, then it means that love will be mine in that final day. We need to connect the dots. Our, our hope needs to be built upon that love. And then in the end of verse 11, this certain joy that we have. And by certain, I mean confident joy. That's the word, just absolute confident jubilation. It's party time. Think of judgment. I'm saying this for effect, kind of for shocking effect. Think of judgment and say, it's time for joy. Because that's what in the great blessing at the end of Jude, he says, he's able to make us stand before his presence of glory with great joy. The presence of God's holiness in that final day of judgment with unlimited joy. That's what salvation is about. And for that to mark every day of my life, you see, that that love, that hope is what sustains me as a human being. So he begins by talking about when we were still weak, still ungodly, verse 6. 
Weak here means that uh, we were without any moral capacity, you see. We were uh, morally debilitated. We looked spiritually like those people that Jesus healed in the New Testament. That's how we were, okay? Uh, We weren't together. We weren't whole. We weren't well. We were weak. We were helpless. And so he came to help the helpless. And and notice the parallel term, weak and ungodly. Substitute them for, for one another. Ungodly, we were unlike God. We didn't like God. We were, wanted to be independent of God. We opposed Him and ignored Him. We would pay no attention to God. We snubbed Him, repudiated, refused, mocked, dishonored. Name it. We've done it as human beings. And notice, he didn't wait until we changed. As we are doing these things, that's the picture. We're all in our selfish parade of self-indulgence, refusing God and acting like he doesn't exist for all practical purposes. Just doing what we want to do, when we want to do it, if and when we want to pray, if and when we ever read his bi- the word, if and when we ever pay him attention. That's what marked humankind. And in that condition in which we didn't draw sympathy from him because of that, but we, by our our sinfulness, would earn his disgust. Right at the point when we were unworthy of it, when we, as he calls us later, sinners, verse 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. says, interestingly, in, in Ephesians 5, you were darkness. Notice, it's not Darwin that you were innocent and you were part of the darkness and the darkness influenced you, Darwin. Darwin, you were darkness. It came out of you. You helped contribute to the dark. You helped create the darkness, Darwin. That's where you were. And when it says at the right time, it certainly means at the time of God's appointment. But many commentators point out that it also likely means that at the time of our greatest need, at the time of our extremity, at the time when we were so lost and could do nothing for ourselves, at the right time for us, you see, that he died for us. And so he died for us before we made any move toward him. He didn't respond to some movement out of our condition toward him so that we met him halfway or whatever. But it's when we cared nothing for his attention, nothing for his affections. Uh, He did not die for us because of any inclination toward him. So can you imagine, while our backs are turned on him, not just do something for us, but he bears the weight of the judgment that we deserve while our backs are upon him. He contrasts this with human love. And the, the basic point is that, you know, human beings at times will die for somebody that they're close to, that, that, that is good. And you, you think of this illustration, say you're on a ship, whatever kind of ship. And if one of my children fell into the water, and let's just suppose for the sake of illustration, there's sharks in the water. Well, hopefully, you and I, fathers, would bail into the water and would, if, if we had to get killed in, in the place of that shark, we'd do that. But there are a lot of people that would fall in the water I wouldn't jump in the water for. 
right? I just, I just know I wouldn't. For my wife, my children, maybe a good friend, somebody that maybe had done a lot for me, that I respected a lot, maybe I would jump. But just a guy falls in. Then think of if, if on this particular ship, this particular set of guys had robbed you blind and in the process had done harm to your children. And your children now were in the hospital on the ship and the ship was turned to go to port because of the danger to your children. And one of those guys fell in. I know what I would think. You got it coming. You know, I'd be rooting for the sharks. I'd be rooting for the sharks. I'd hope they got killed because of what they did to me. I know that's what I would do. Now, that's the point that Paul is making. That's who he died for. His personal enemies, the ones who hated him personally. We all had turned against him as our creator. And there's nothing more important than how you regard your creator. Way more important than how you regard any human being, although that is critical as well. But how you regard this God, that's the whole of life. It defines life for human beings. It it determines your future life. And so for us, who he says were weak and ungodly and sinners and enemies... Christ died for us. We were helpless to break the chains of sin. We could never struggle to get free. But God did it for us. Now, he then argues from that point. He argues from that point our hope for the future. Now, before we go to that, I just want to say this. This Here's a comment that uh, years ago... and. 1500s, John Calvin wrote. He said this, Faith is the beginning of godliness. That's to say, helplessness is the beginning of godliness. Helplessness. Helplessness as to my own ability, my own strength. Helplessness because I realize my sinfulness and my animosity toward God, my refusal of God. And faith is also recognizing God is the one who gave His Son for me. You see, faith has those two things. Number one, seeing how badly I need God's work and salvation. And number two, seeing, look what God has done for me. How could He do it? Why would He do it for me? Why would He do this for sinners and enemies and the ungodly? But He has, and now He invites me to participate in it. He invites me to rest myself in this Christ that He has given to me. And so then Paul argues to the future. Since we have this love of Christ, and by the way, if you back up to verse 5, he's talked about how the Holy Spirit has poured into our hearts, convincing us of the love of God. In other words, we've experienced the love of God through the Holy Spirit. And I just want to underscore that love that you experience in your heart has a grounding in history that's wonderful. You you can't just make up this love or, or maybe you just think, well, I think whoever God is, I think we're okay. No, 
the, the only way you can really know that this God has loved you through the Holy Spirit is that it's rooted, it's anchored in history. And this, is, this, this love that I've experienced through the Holy Spirit, it's anchored in the history. Look what God has done to show His love. Because that's the point. He demonstrates His love, verse 8. Shows. That's present tense. It's accomplished in the past, but it's a live demonstration from now on. It's a live demonstration that God loves sinners and wants to do them good. Now, having shown this, he simply argues that if he's done the major thing, he'll do the minor thing. If he's done this great work for his enemies, now that his enemies are his friends, now that you've been reconciled to him, and as he described it in verse 1, we have peace with God and we have access to God. We're in this relationship of love to God. Will he then turn away from you in the end? No. It's a very powerful argument. Rooted in the accomplished, demonstrated love of God. And so he says, having been justified, much more shall we be saved from that wrath that is coming. And that wrath is coming. Paul said a similar thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in talking about this wrath. He says this, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the plan. God has planned. You will not taste His wrath ever. That's why later Paul can say in Romans 8, there is no condemnation, which is to say there is no wrath. There is no judgment on the people of God because that judgment has been spent. One commentator said it's been exhausted in Christ for His people. There is no wrath left. There is no condemnation. And so we can know since we have been brought into this relationship and that we will be saved in that final day. And here, verse 10, he he tightens it down. He even increases the contrast. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled. Now that we are reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. And when he says by his life, he's talking about the resurrected life, Christ's resurrected life. The life that he lives at the right hand of God. And this life of of Jesus embraces us and preserves us as the people of God. That's why we live spiritually. His life has embraced us. His life has joined itself to us. His life preserves us. And so the Christ who died for us lives for us. The Christ who destroyed the threats that... Uh, were against us, the power of the past and sin. He will destroy all threats in the future because He's the living Lord over all things. Nothing can stay His hand. That's why it's so encouraging in Ephesians 1. All authority and power and dominion are under His feet. Particularly, particularly there, He's talking about the spiritual forces that would be waged against us. So whatever would oppose us, God is for us in Christ. One commentator put it this way. He, in his person, is the irreversible for us of God. In other words, God is for us. It is irreversible. How do you know? There's the living person, Jesus Christ. He tells you by his life, God is for you every single minute of your life because Christ 
is raised from the dead and is living at the right hand of God. And he is your Lord. This word reconciliation was not used in the pagan religions because they didn't regard a personal relationship like this. But in Jewish thinking, in Christian thinking, it's very personal. There's peace, there's reconciliation, there's a relationship with God. And if God has done this for his enemies, what will he do for you and me now that we're his friends? Maybe an illustration would help drive that home a bit. You uh, may not know the name Robert Rodot, uh, and I'm not sure about pronunciation of his last name, but in 1994, he saw a monument uh, in Port Carbon, Pennsylvania, And it was a monument in honor of four brothers, all born to an Agnes Allison that lived in Port Carbon, Pennsylvania. All four of these boys died in the American Civil War. All four of them. So it's a monument to the loss that this mother suffered. Well, Robert Rodat got an idea for a story from that. He wanted to set it in World War II. And we know it as Saving Private Ryan. So as he wrote his story uh, there in World War II, uh, George Marshall, the general, as information came in, found out that, according to this story, two of these Ryan brothers had been killed in uh, Normandy in the uh, Allied attack on the Germans. A third Ryan son had been killed in uh, the conflict with the Japanese in New Guinea. His mother, their mother, was going to hear about all three of those on the same day. All three of her boys dead. There was a fourth son, James Ryan, James Francis Ryan. And they decided, we've got to get him home. We've got to get him. That's the name, Saving Private Ryan. Many of you have seen it. and seen the terrible 24 minutes without music as it uh, up front in the uh, depiction of that awful battle at Normandy, Omaha Beach. Well, they call a Captain Miller. Uh, Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, part of uh, Charlie Company, 2nd Ranger Battalion, and it shows his part in winning the beach. And now he's contacted right after that saying, you've got to go and find this Private Ryan. He's behind lines. They don't even know if he's alive or not. So he picks seven guys, six from his uh, group and one translator, cartographer, and they go on this mission. And on the way to get him, he loses two of his men. And then they find him, finally, at this town called Ramel. And they decide to stay there because they've got to hold the bridge. And so they join with the paratroopers as this much larger and and more uh, equipped German army comes to retake that town, a critical area. And so they stay, and almost everybody is killed. All of his uh, uh, soldiers except one are killed. And right at the end, when you think they're all going to be wiped out, the American cavalry, so to speak, comes and and saves the town. Uh, Private Ryan is is saved. Miller is killed. Now, let's just suppose they go to all this trouble to save him. They spend the lives of these men to save him. Then they get him back to the front where the Allied line is in in France. They ship him home uh, to the United States. Do you think, having gotten him home to the United States, that they would then take him the rest of the way to his mother? 
Think, well, yeah, of course. Look what they did. I mean, they, they, they sacrificed so many lives to get him. They went to such an extent, willing to lose their lives because all of these brothers had lost their lives and they wanted to save that one life, last life of that brother. Surely when they get back, the, the easy thing is to get him on home to his mother on the train. And that's the picture here. That's really the picture for us. The great, incredible accomplishment of the death of Christ. God spent everything to rescue you, to have you as his own. And that's to build your hope so that you draw the conclusion, wait a minute, he's never going to let me go, is he? He's never going to stop loving me, is he? This love is permanent, isn't it? He'll do anything for me, won't he? Everything that happens to me then is connected with that love, isn't it? Yes, it is. He will never turn away from me no matter what. Yes, that's right. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope. And as you perhaps are visiting with us, I want you to think about the seriousness. Think of the seriousness of sending men to die, maybe more men dying than the original man. Why didn't they just let Ryan die? You know, you think of the seriousness of God sending his son into such a conflict to die. It must have been serious. We must have really had a situation to have to deal with it in this incredible way to send your own son for the rescue or else we would have been lost. Can you imagine? Would you think of this that God would accomplish this, then He would offer you His Son to say, you will not have to bear wrath in that final day. You can have a relationship of peace and reconciliation with me right now. I will be your Father and your God throughout your life and throughout eternity. Will you have me? And then in the face of that sacrifice to say, no, no. To despise that sacrifice to despise living in union with this resurrected Christ, to despise living with Him forever. If you trust in this Christ, to some degree, it reorients the whole of your life. You can't push Christ to the edge of your life. You can't push God to the outskirts and say, well, every once in a while I maybe think about you. Every once in a while I may do something for you or you crowd into my thoughts. What happens for a person that trusts in this Christ that's revolutionized by this death and resurrection is that your center point changes and it becomes Christ. And we begin to say with Paul, the love of Christ controls me. That's what he will do for you. That's what he will do for you, is reorient your life that sets you free from yourself to begin to give yourself up to God all new. And then when you begin to do that, you begin to give yourself away to others in new ways. You become a different person to others around you. And you become like God himself. This God, who so sacrificed himself for his enemies, we begin to some ways... Copy that love. And that's our glory, that we begin to be like God and we share that resurrected life and we begin to show His glory. Will you trust in Him? It would be a sad thing to 
quote, celebrate Easter, celebrate the resurrection, and not participate in that resurrection. That's the invitation from God. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, you are the one raised from the dead. You are the one who sacrificed himself, bearing our sins in your body on the cross, that we might not bear those sins, that all the enmity between us and God could be removed so that the way would be clear for us to come to God, not because of anything good in us, but because God has had mercy on us. Thank you, Lord, that we can freely admit all that we are. Everything bad that we've done or thought or said, it's open before you. And we can know that you acted for our benefit even while we were in the midst of our rejection of you. May that persuade us. May that persuade many here. I want to trust this God who would act on my behalf when my back was turned on him. I want to know this God. I want to taste him. I want to know what forgiveness is. I want to know what this new life in Christ could be for me. Oh, Lord, draw people to yourself. You're our only hope. You're our only help. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away